your mind is changing your brain. Your brain is never the same. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Joshua Marine. Challenges are what make life interesting, and overcoming them is what makes life meaningful. My guest today, Dr. Caroline Leaf, is an expert on helping people overcome challenges. She's a renowned neuroscientist, best-selling author, and host of the award-winning podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. Her latest book, How to Help Your Child Clean Up Their Mental Mess, tackles the pressing issue of mental health among children, offering proven strategies for building resilience and managing anxiety and depression. It's available today wherever books are sold. Dr. Leaf, welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. I appreciate it. Love the quote. I thought that was amazing. We try to find one that matches up. So I always find it's interesting to start at the beginning, kind of early days. Uh, So tell us a little bit about your childhood and what kind of made you interested in this field of mental health and and solving challenges. Well, it was, um, I'm actually a psycho neurobiologist. I've specialized in the mind-brain-body connection, that side of neuroscience. So it's a little bit of, you know, taking it kind of from a different angle. And it started out from a child, very interested in the mind and the brain. And I was going to become a basically a neurosurgeon. And then I realized surgery is not going to, doesn't satisfy that sort of philosophical mind side that I was interested in. And I went into communication pathology and that gave me a very big exposure to all the different fields that are concepts that I'm in. Early days, I was sitting in a lecture with one of my one of our neuroscience lecturers, and he was saying that, you know, the brain can't change. This was back in the 80s when they believed that the brain couldn't change and that the mind was separate from the brain. So that part's correct. But the fact that the brain couldn't change was incorrect, as we know now. And I remember him saying that. And I said, you know, I I can't kind of understand that because as humans, we're constantly changing and for good or bad, good, good, bad and ugly and so on. And so therefore, our brain must be changing because our mind is using our brain. And based on that, he said, well, go do some research. And I did. And that launched me into 38 years later. I'm still doing research. I did some of the first neuroplasticity research in my field and pretty much in the world back in the late 80s, early 90s, working with traumatic brain injured patients and showing that if you help a person to really manage their mind, you can actually change the way that the mind and the brain and the body functions and therefore how a person functions in life. And that just really continued into all areas of trauma, mental health, as well as neurological things like learning disabilities and dementias and autism. And and here I am today doing still doing this and still doing clinical trials and really trying to help people realize that they can be empowered to manage their mental health. That, you know, that what's happened to you does impact you, but your story never changes. But the way it plays out into your future is something that you actually can have some control over, which is really hopeful. So I'm not going to get this right, but you said something in the beginning there. You can change the mind, but not the brain. Was that the, or did I get that backwards? (laughs) So, okay. So very good. No, good catch. So basically in the 80s, they didn't believe that the brain could change. So the current philosophy was that the brain was fixed, but that the mind could change. So whatever you had, you were stuck with. You were stuck with. But they believed the mind could change. But they So there was this weird disconnect that the mind and brain are separate. How could the mind not be connected to the brain? I mean, I'm not even a scientist, but that doesn't make sense to me. It, it just, there was, <laughs> the 80s was sort of 70s and 80s. It was kind of, it was good because they recognized that the mind was something and the brain was something. 
So there was that. Did those people perceive that the mind was software and the brain was hardware? Was that sort well, of a, even kind of, but even more, it was even more of a situation of you know your mind is really con- it's separate, but it's controlled. So if the brain is broken, well, that's it. You know, there's not much you can do. But we saw from the mid '90s with the advent of MRI and then also my research and a few researchers in the early '90s and late '80s that actually. If you work on your mind, the brain does change. Your brain isn't fixed. Your brain is, and and now we know that every moment of every day that you're awake, your mind is changing your brain. Your brain is never the same. And that's pretty much what mind-directed neuroplasticity is. And that's continued to be a very interesting area of research for a lot of us. So I've focused um, heavily on the psychoneurobiology component, which is mind-brain-body connection and how they're all relatable and feedback into each other. Your traditional kind of cognitive neuroscience looks at the brain and then talks about the brain generating the mind, which I don't, as a psychoneurobiologist, we don't agree with that. We believe that the mind changes the brain and the brain responds to the mind versus the brain being like the thing that makes the mind. So there's a distinction there. And that's always like that in science. I mean, that's how we develop and grow and ask questions and explore and hypothesize and try and show with our research what's going on. So I'm curious how you would react to this. I was in a group of doing office hours for my Elevate Club group. And someone asked me a question yesterday around, well, is leadership uh, innate or is it taught or can you kind of teach someone to be a, a better leader? And my answer was, absolutely. I think you can teach someone to become a better leader. Some people don't want to lead, but I've never been successful at trying to make someone better at something that they don't want to do. So I I say the same thing about changing people's mind. People can change. I I don't think other people can change them. I think if they want to make the decision to change and do the hard work that they they can change. And and so my answer was similar to that. Um, what, What are your thoughts around that? Oh, totally. You're totally spot on. I mean, from a scientific perspective and just a logical perspective, that is the case. Yeah. That you know, you can't fix someone and you can't force someone to change. You can only facilitate and encourage and guide. And then the person has to make that choice. You know, that comes down to becoming a leader. And on the leadership side, just quickly, um, I believe everyone is has got leadership qualities, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're leading a large group of people, just leading their own life or leading in in the in something that you specifically area. Or that they don't want to do it, right? Or so, they don't want to do it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's it's really what a person is comfortable doing and what they want to do. But we, we can all, but yeah, so there's some people that love to lead large groups and that kind of thing. In terms of um, the ability to change, we can't, we change ourselves. And it's our environment that impacts us and people impact us. But ultimately, we're the ones that have to choose to grow and make the change and we can stay stuck in patterns or we can change those patterns this is the power of the mind brain body connection that right. you know we don't have to stay stuck yeah i i, I said look if you tell someone i said look my, my answer was I, i've seen these moments where you say to someone look we read your feedback and you're a crappy leader according to your team right and they and they say bleep you and they storm off or they say <laughs> oh wow i had no idea like i don't want to be a crappy leader like i want to Give me the feedback and I want to do the work. And then, you know, I've fundamentally seen those people change because they didn't realize, you know, how the world preceded them. So, uh, yeah, I think first there's an awareness component, but it sounds like all of your research and all the prevailing research is you can, again, you can change these things, but it's going to take a little bit of work. Oh, a lot of work, definitely. (laughs) And as you say, you described a classic example there. If someone doesn't want to learn, 
they walk off. But the person who says, okay, give me the feedback, let me assess and let me change, that's the person who will change. So it's yeah. very much up to what they what a person is wanting to do. You know, it's like someone who's got stuck in an addiction. It's not a disease. It's a coping mechanism. And to constantly fall back into that pattern is not necessarily, it doesn't have to happen. We have to get to the point where we have to find the source behind why we do what we do. And therefore, the choice to move forward is a choice versus kind of give, throwing up your hands and saying, well, I can't change. This is who I am. Everyone can change. Everyone can change. And if it's something that you are doing in your life that is impacting your life negatively or the lives of others or holding you back, that is something that should be evaluated because then, you know, if it's negative impact, it's not healthy for you right. physically and mentally. Look, and we all have stuff that gets in our way Absolutely. and uh, self-doubts and thoughts and parents and teachers and a whole collection of stuff that that clutters exactly. us. I, I, this last year book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, I love I love that title. So t- tell me you. a little bit of how you got to that book. Well, there's two. So the one you just mentioned is the one I released just over a year ago, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. And that's, by the way, that was that one was my 18th book. The one that the children's one is the 19th book. So yeah, we'll talk. So, we're going to talk. We're going to dive into that in a little bit. I want I want to start with everyone's mental mess, and then we'll go into the. I love it. I love yeah. it. So I'd say that all of it, just I said that to say that these two are kind of like an accumulation of my research. So all the books that you that I've written and everything are all kind of build up to the point where I think these two really capture what I was trying to achieve, which is you know what does it mean? What is the mind? What is the brain? What is the thought? What is what does it mean when we say life impacts us what kind of level of control yeah. do we have what really is mental health so those are the questions that i have been researching and building into simple answers that every person should know because we should be empowered to understand how we as humans function and, and not feel so helpless because in the last 40 years as i've been in this field you know there's the increased helplessness has become very evident and so the first book the sort of general book for anyone from sort of 12 up, but mainly geared towards your sort of 18 plus, is really helping a person to understand those aspects. What is a thought? What is a memory? How how do they actually build in our brain? What does it mean that we grow a memory or we, we have, what are our memories? Where do they come from? Um, how do experiences impact us? And what level of um, power do we have as a human to actually observe our life and make the changes? So kind of reverse engineer um, the source of the issues that we've gone through without with recognizing you can't change what's happened, but you can change how it plays out into your future. So that's what cleaning up the mental mess in general does. And over the years, I developed a theory and a system of trying to help this complex process of how does a thought form in the brain as a result of whatever you do, leadership, but parenting, life, and how can I grow the healthy stuff and how can I find the things that are inhibiting my progress or holding me back or giving me mental health challenges and how can I reverse engineer that. So I developed a system called the NeuroCycle, which is mind-driven neuroplasticity. In other words, we use our mind, of which we have a messy mind, which is the day-to-day stuff, the stuff that we just, it's normal. It's, yeah, it's and the okay amount of to- inputs that we're having today, like are just, our brain's not wired to handle 
<laughs> the amount of inputs that we get generally. Well, it's it's kind of gets confused because our brain just does what our mind tells yeah. it to do. So our mind can handle an infinite number of input, but it's um, if we don't organize it. So if think of it, this all this input's coming in 95% of which we're not even aware of that we're consciously absorbing. And that creates quite a messy state. And that's actually quite normal. It's like balls coming out and you just can't catch them all, right? Like yeah, that's yeah. It. They all, they, you can't catch them all consciously, but they, yeah. they actually all, they they're all going in. <laughs> they're all landing. And some of them you know, aren't the greatest balls and some are really great. And some you're consciously aware of and you selectively choose to focus on and that kind of stuff. So it's all coming at you and you're at your mind that's actually a, a, a processing this. So psychologically, you're thinking, feeling and choosing in response to that. And on a sort of physics level, it's all gravitational fields and electromagnetic sound, light waves and sound waves, all this fantastic stuff that we can actually talk about and so there's this processing physics psychological thing happening in response to life and all those balls are coming in and they're actually coming into your mind through the messiness which is all how do i make sense of this and then we have our wise part of us which is the ability to okay this is making me feel like lousy and this is impacting how i'm behaving and this is really affecting my relationships so this ability to assess how we function is there as well. So our mind has these two, the messy part that's just, you know, dealing with the, what's coming in and then the evaluative part that is that we need to train ourselves to tune into via signals. And we can dive into this in a little more depth that then helps us to see, okay, those balls definitely landed in the wrong place. I need to do something about those as affecting this. Those. And that's kind of a process of mind management. And that's a skill that's naturally in us, but it's a skill that we have to actually develop. And it's very closely related to how to our mental health. So it's mind first, then brain. Mind uses the brain. And the mind needs the sub, a physical substrate that's complex like the brain because otherwise you couldn't we couldn't have this conversation. Right. So it's the mind aspect that then links in with the physical aspect and the brain responds on all these electrochemical and neurochemical and quantum levels and genetic levels. And the actual experience becomes neuroplastically wired into the brain, also inside the body, also in the gravitational fields of the mind. So it goes in the experiences that like this conversation is going into three places inside of us as humans, mind, brain, body. And then that combination shows up in what we say, what we do, how we how we feel, etc. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 
36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. And let me ask you, Sam, I'm sure you're familiar with Jonathan Haidt's work and, and some of the I stuff am. that he's done. Because I love his stuff. Yes, mm-hmm. your stuff overlaps. And again, not, not to get political, but one of the points that he brings up, and I think that has become sort of a, a talking point of what we'll say at the very far left, just to is that if you think it or feel it, it is true, <laughs> right? It is true for you. And, and I think he points out that that's a really dangerous thing to do is an example of absolutely you know there's 500,000 calls into the New York subway police because it says you know if you feel something's wrong call and there's one incident for every 500,000 calls right so that's not factual yeah. so talk a little bit about is that is that because that's become a talking point in society and it goes along with a lot of the these problems around again you know I think something's threatening it may not be threatening at all like how, what <laughs> is that a problem and how does how should one address that or process that more more practically it's a very good question and it relates to what's been uh, the trends and the zeitgeist and the shifts that have been happening over the last four decades for five yeah. decades where as we've become more scientifically able to study things like the brain and understand physics more and all these incredible advances in medicine and things, it's kind of made us as a human humanity globally into almost becoming neuroreductionistic, focused very much on the physical, the um, experience, what I can tangibly touch, which will lead to things like, oh, well, I feel it, so it must be true. Whereas if we look at what's logical or what's sort of established for thousands of years, and that's that as humans, we are messy and sometimes we're going to make bad decisions. And just because you feel it doesn't make it true. It just That's right. your perception and your experience. So everything should be questioned. Perception is key. Right. It's your perception. I think that's a key. You might be having the feelings and it's a true perception. It just may not be reality. Exactly. And it's, and it's maybe your reality based on your, but it doesn't mean it's everyone else's reality. Right. You know, so it's the whole thing of like religions and, and, you know, the <laughs> Republicans and Democrats and left and right and all this, you know, if as soon as you start saying this is the way we've missed the boat because yeah. there's, there's always diversity is, is, is the name of the game and love is accepting diversity. So when, when we manage our minds, we can stand back and say, okay, this is how I feel strongly and this is what, what is based on. But I recognize that there's other people that also have different perceptions and, you know, what's the negotiation that is needed here for us to have deep, meaningful communication so we can move forward as a society. And that is mind management. And that started missing that we see very clearly in the psychiatric world, um, where we've taken people's entire stories and context and um, the way they function, and we've reduced that down to a set of symptoms. So we've equated a person's experience with something like uh, diabetes, which has very specific symptoms. And that you can't do. You, you you need the medical approach, but you need when it comes to humans and life and, and experience and 
being impacted by environment and choices and all these things, we have to consider the whole person's context. So someone's very left-wing or very right-wing, you know, there's a context around that. It doesn't make them right. It doesn't make them wrong. It makes them extreme, which is is dangerous. But it makes it, it we, we need to be standing back and questioning why have we got so specific? Why are we saying there's only one way when diversity is the name of the game? We need to have a much broader approach. So what I try and teach people to do just in terms of mental health is, and I've tracked this in my research and clinical work and all that kind of stuff in the field that I move in, but essentially we need to understand and see that if we take reduce people down just to a brain that is responding without free will or that is just sort of driven by genetics or that everything's got to be around just the physical. We miss all the nuance of the individual complex life. And that then creates a, a very big problem in how people's mental health is managed and increases this narrow-minded kind of view that we are seeing today where people, and I'm taught that it's not ever happened before, but it's definitely extreme in, in this generation. Every generation faces something. And I firmly believe if you track back, we see shifts happening around 40 years. Yeah. What are, what are the key, obviously there's just more awareness of mental health, but th- whether it's the technology or how we live, it seems like something has changed and, and there's an interesting, I see where, where, and we can get into the kid part in, in a little bit, but it seems from a lot of the people from the outside who would have the least things to worry about and are the most financially secure. And, and a lot of the stressors that you would think normally you know, the my my wife read this book years ago called The Price of Privilege, and she like couldn't even finish it. She was so depressed <laughs> reading it. Um, yeah. So, I, like, help me or us like understand what are these shifts that have changed that have gotten us here. So, this is such a great question. Something that I love talking about. Um, I can take it from sort of a couple of angles. Let's sort of track back to 40, 50 years ago, where we started understanding more about the brain. And um, we started discovering things like um, you can control people's responses with medications and things like that. And we started having a much, and especially from the 90s, where we started understanding more about the, really the detail of how the brain functions, seeing inside the brain and that kind of thing. That shift, especially I reckon the last 40 years, we've stopped looking at the whole human component, the mind, and we've reduced people's humanity down to a list of symptoms. And if you track, um, there was research that started around the mid-90s that started seeing this shift and started being concerned to see what is the impact going to be long-term. And between 2014 and 15, which was quite a long time before COVID, a good four or five years before COVID hit us, we saw that people were starting to die between 8 to 25 years younger from preventable lifestyle diseases. Now, what that means is that we it's very established in research that chronic unmanaged toxic stress increases our vulnerability to illness. And if we don't manage illness, illness increases our vulnerability to getting sick and dying younger and all that kind of stuff. But we saw this dramatic rise in people actually getting sicker and dying younger from things that were preventable. So we have the science and the medicine to get people to be healthier, but somehow something's gone wrong. So we see this shift. And we also see a massive shift in looking at people's complex humanity as just simple symptoms. And if you track forward, this has got worse and worse. And we're sitting now in our current crisis where mental health has never been as bad as it's ever, but it's like it's at its worst stage. It's 
you know, if you know all the numbers and I don't have to repeat them. Everyone's getting them in their face every day. They're records. That's, yeah. <laughs> They're records. They're records that are breaking. And I don't think it's because there's some weird virus that's now making, attacking our brains and making us all go crazy, which is, I mean, that's that extreme virus statement. called social media. <laughs> <laughs> well, 2010 is when we saw a massive shift in social media. So 2010, there's the work of Gene Twenge and a lot of others which show that in 2010, from then on, we also saw a massive shift in how people are connecting with others. And that leads to the Surgeon General's report that was released recently, where one in two people in, in the country, um, in, the, in the United States, and this reflects globally pretty much as well, that are uh, battling with loneliness. And we know there's a direct link between loneliness affecting how bodies function, increasing chance of cardiovascular disease and things like dementia. So it's very established in the literature that if we don't operate in our humanity, which is deep meaningful connection, which is listening to each other, which is not looking at you being depressed as a disease, but you depression being a signal that goes along with your behaviors and your perceptions and your bodily sensations. And it's reflecting a story going on in your life and taking the time to say, okay, this is how I'm showing up. It's not who I am. Where's this coming from? What's the root experience? How can I reconstruct and deconstruct and reconstruct and make this change for me? That takes time. That's shifted. There's been a massive shift from that kind of approach to people battling with life to one of, oh, list of symptoms, 15 minutes later, here's a med, here's a label, here's a diagnosis. That has shifted and that will increase um, mental, the mental health issues. So my, I firmly believe that the mental health crisis is a mind management crisis, that if we don't allow ourselves to process and help our children learn to process what they're experiencing. Teach a child how to manage social media. It's not a bad thing, but if it's managed, it becomes a bad thing. AI, not a bad thing, but it becomes right. a problem when it's not managed. Um, illnesses that I've done a lot of work in showing that if we just have a, a toxic issue, maybe it's from childhood, maybe it's from adolescence, whatever, but you never deal with that. That is a real physical change in your brain and your body and your mind. It's not naturally wired for your brain, mind and body are not naturally wired for that toxic experience. And so your brain's immune system will treat that toxic experience in the same way as it treats something like the COVID virus. So the brain doesn't distinguish, the immune system of the brain doesn't distinguish between a physical uh, pathogen and a psychological experience. They both wire in the brain as protein structures and changes in the body. Right. And so if we don't deal with those, what the, the research shows very clearly for years now is that an unmanaged issue creates inflammation increases vulnerability to disease, has downstream effects on the entire system, and lands up increasing vulnerability to disease. We call it genetic liability. That's kind of what's going on, and we need to ma manage our mind and to get a handle on that process. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. 
That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, two divergent things on that. You can choose the order. One is, I actually saw some research that said <laughs> there's a noticeable trend when the self facing camera came out and and when things started to go off the rail i think just this orientation around like it's about me and again ironically for all of the sharing on the beach and all this you know it's such extrinsic motivation which can never be sort of fulfilled um and, and the loneliness seemed to increase so that that's number one and number two is i think what you were kind of alluding to and I think this is really important for people to understand. And you, you, I've explained it to people in layman's terms, having heard it from experts. But our, our stress and a lot of the stuff we deal with turns on our fight or flight mechanism, which was kind of designed thousands or millions of years ago to like save us from a bear or save us from life-threatening situations. It wasn't really designed for white-collar stress and situations, but it seems like we're using it all day long. And then it's really causing us to be sick. Again, this thing that is threatening or this tweet that is threatening or the perception of a tweet that is threatening causes the same biological reaction as running into a bear in the woods thousands of years ago. So can you kind of maybe talk about, uh, I, I just find it so fun, not funny. It's just so interesting that again, the more online connection, the more loneliness, like, and if people aren't paying attention to that and parents, and we'll dive into that in a second. And then this kind of fight or flight, we we haven't outgrown our primitive wiring around this. Thanks for bringing that up because it's it's relevant, but it's I think it's a concept that's been totally overused and overexplained and, and not correctly understood. I'll give you kind of a simple version of the science. So that's that explanation that you've given, it isn't wrong, but it's also not right. It's not totally correct. And it's used as we hear this, we hear that all the time. So here's the correct way of looking at stress. Stress is good for you. You need stress. You cannot function without stress. And most people have heard of, you know, use stress, which is good stress and that kind of thing. And the way to understand this is that when I'm, for example, listening to you now and you're asking me a question, I'm going into very healthy stress. My whole HPA axis is, is working with the rest of my body to enable me to function at a high level so I can process and answer your question. And same with people, you know, you asking me the questions and so on, just to give an example. So everything's functioning at the sweet spot, like almost like the Goldilocks principle. You know, we talk about the Goldilocks principle quite a lot when we talk about neurophysiology and that is that it's not too hot it's not too cold it's not too sweet it's just perfect so each of us have this sweet spot for stress and the hpa axis in response working for us so the experience comes in and our whole psycho neurobiology is primed to be able to respond in the way that's the most efficient for you in the current situation so we don't have to even really look yes it began with that our ancestors are, that's what they lived in. We live in another situation. Yeah. So the same system is operating. So it's not that we're misusing a system. It's a system that operates. It's just the basic neuropsychoneurobiology of how the brain functions. The, the way that it's explained is that, okay, well, now we've got stuck and that doesn't work for us anymore. Of course it works for us. It still works for us. It's the problem is that um, if we are in that stress situation and we don't manage it accordingly to our current situation, then we are going to tip over into toxic stress. 
So then instead of the cortisol, the HPA exodus, the, all the different neurophysiology, I won't go into all the detail of that, instead of it working for us, it shifts and works against us. So it's, for example, like depression, anxiety, these are not bad things. These are good things. They work for you when you understand the sweet spots principle. They keep you, if you feel a little depressed when you actually look back at years lost because of some trauma, that's a very normal depression. If you stay in that depression and it gets, if you don't manage it, then it shifts over into the toxic state and then it becomes too much. So it's keeping things in the sweet spot that helps us to operate and function. And this is where the messy mind comes in. We have a bit of depression, a bit of anxiety, a bit of a reaction, a bit of this. And if we carry on just doing the same thing, so keep scrolling through the social media, getting the FOMO, comparing yourself to that curated life, which is not the truth, and we all know that. Your brain simply does what your mind tells it to do. So then you merge with that environment. And when you merge with that environment, you are wiring toxicity in your brain. Your brain doesn't distinguish. It's your mind that's distinguishing. So your messy mind is now on the cycle of being kind of stuck. And then your brain just wires accordingly. So now you create 63 days later, which is the length of time more or less that it creates a habit. You have now created a neural network and a messy mind neural network and in your body connection that is now easier to fall into. But what we can do is we can manage that. And we've got to teach ourselves and our kids to manage that. Okay, this is having how. You start, what is the impact this is having on my life? Right. If you practice an activity, you'll become very good at it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You become good. You build it into your auto. It's called automatization in science. So basically, your brain is very intelligent. Your mind or your mind is intelligent. Your brain just does what it's, it only works because your mind's alive. If you're dead, your brain stops working. So your mind is extremely intelligent, your messy and your wise mind. Your wise mind is the most intelligent part of you. So if we have taken, done this constant thing that we just described, the cycle, and we've tipped into unhealthy stress, all of our neurochemistry, all of our psychoneurobiology's mess is kind of working against us and we wire this pattern in and we start then putting strain on every cell of our body and the quality of of the cells that we make and we make about a million every second which then make our body that starts weakening so over time there's an accumulation of tremendous stress on our physical because of the the unmanaged messiness of our mind but if we could train ourselves to say hey i reckon these are the signals of getting stuck in these patterns and these this automatized behavior, which is not robotic. It's very intelligent. It's just that it's gone into the non-conscious as a toxic thing. And whatever you think about the most will keep growing. If we can train ourselves, which we can, and I've shown this with my research and instinctively everyone's done this at some point in their life, you stand back and you say, okay, no, this is far enough, no further. I'm going to change my leadership style. It's impacting negatively. I'm going to change the way I'm handling this relationship because it's affecting whatever. Right, this we- is not working for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's not working. It's impacting my daily life, my relationships, my work, my mental health. When we make that decision, what we do is we step into our wise mind. We observe for want of a better word, our instinct, our gut feel, our wide for love nature, whatever you want to call it. We have this part of us and it's biologically shown to be true and neurologically shown to be true and psychologically shown to be true. When we step back into that, we can then observe how we're showing up and we can start making decisions about changing that. So we can look at the messiness and we can then, when we do that, what we do is we're starting to now shift that stress reaction out of the danger zone into a healthy zone and we now are able to function at a much higher level intellectually. It doesn't mean that you won't No one can ever eliminate anxiety and depression, for example, and we shouldn't even try because they're very useful messengers, emotional signals that work with behaviors and bodily sensations and perspectives to help us to be able to do this evaluation, 
that I'm talking about. And that's what's missing and what started slipping out of the picture around 40 years ago. And that's creating, and you, if you don't do that as humans, we just accumulate and these things become like volcanoes. They just keep erupting in our lives and they build, build, build and erupt. And that's where we see people that are privileged, like your wife got depressed reading that book and you know people that seem to have it all together that just are falling apart yeah. and how literally every second person's feeling like they've got some kind of mental health disease or their brain's broken which is the wrong messaging we've been made to you know feel that we're fragile we're not fragile we're very strong very resilient if we know how to activate that that element's been removed and that's what we need to bring back Let's talk about the resilience piece and, and your latest book, uh, which came soon after. So how to help your children clean up <laughs> their mental mess, which is which is centered on helping children overcome a lot of healthy mental habits. I think if we're hitting records in mental health problems, we're hitting real even more records, right? With 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 youth these days. What look, I think what's going on? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I sort of know what's going on. I so many questions, but let's start with that. What what is going on and what specifically is going on with kids that maybe uh, different from adults. It, it, I'm fascinated because I think looking at this as sort of a leadership thing from a parent perspective, you know, in a business or otherwise you're a leader, you're doing something and it doesn't work. You end up changing what you're doing or you end up in a <laughs> a conversation with HR around, hey, what you're doing isn't working. You need to change it. I, I think of what a lot of parents have been doing for the last 10 or 20 years, this new phase of parenting that I would call sort of permissive and overbearing the data would show it's just not working and it's an abominable mess, but everyone's doubling down on it. And, and this kind of makes no sense to me. So I, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. And then particularly the role of resilience seems to, to me to be the key thing that, that kids are just not, not growing up with and why they're running into some of these things sooner and, and harder than usual. You raised some very good points there and uh, very accurate um, perceptions and things. So first of all, based on this, what we've just been discussing, our current, let's say, two through 20-year-old, 30-year-old, even our millennials have grown up. So Gen Alpha, Gen Z and the millennials have pretty much grown up in a zeitgeist of if you're battling with your emotions, there's something wrong with you as an individual. Prior to that, when we battled with something in life, which is such a human experience, not one person alive. If you're human, you're crazy, you're battling, life, you're right. mess. Life's hard. It's not life easy. Life is difficult. Yeah. Exactly. And some people obviously have really extreme situations yeah. happen and, you know, war, trauma, whatever, and abuse and so on. But on average, we live in that, if you think of a scale of one to 10, we're living around that one to five, which is the day-to-day -day struggles and the bullying and the teasing and the bad bosses and the bad leadership and the political situation. That is our reality. It's always been a reality for humans. It's just different every generation. So essentially, bottom line is that how, what if we've been doing and um, that's different for the last 40 years in terms of just being alive and the first thing as I already mentioned is we shifted how we look at humans so instead of seeing the struggles as just a normal part of trying to work it through and then as a parent or whatever sitting down a leader whatever and saying okay let's talk about why you are throwing tantrums or let's talk about why you're withdrawing into your room you know is there something going on at school and having that deep conversation and processing through what's happening which is normal. I mean, that's in, what I'm saying now sounds very instinctual, but it's not really happening. What's happening is that people, that um, the zeitgeist, the philosophy has been one of as soon as your child or you show any kind of symptoms of depression or anxiety or behavior problems or concentrational focus, there's something wrong with you. You've got to get to the professional for a diagnosis 
or remove the problem quickly, right? Remove, remove the discomfort. It. Eliminate yeah. the symptom. Exactly. Remove the discomfort. Uh, someone Get- I just had on the podcast, he loves to say, we used to prepare the child for the path. Now we try to prepare the path for the child. I, I exactly. That. That's a very famous <laughs> saying by, I'm trying to think who said that. That's it. One of the philosophers said that. It, it's totally true. It's accurate. You can't do that. We've got to stop pathologizing childhood. We've got to stop medicalizing misery. And that's what we've been doing for the last 40, 50 years. So our children have, up to the sort of 30-year-olds, as I said, have grown up with that, that if I don't feel good, there's something wrong with me, which removes an element of empowerment. It makes them feel hopeless. And it doesn't allow for the natural psychological immunity or our resilience, which is natural in us as humans, to be activated. So the messaging comes through, which is also what Hay talks about and the other guy, I'm trying to remember his name, the fragility. not fragile, but the messaging has come through that you are fragile, your child is fragile, and any signs of those symptoms, boom, let's quickly go and do the medical treatment so that we can prepare them. Now, that's removed resilience. The good old cry, scream, talk about how you're feeling, but not just talk about how you're feeling, process through how you're feeling. So we've gone to this extreme looking at symptoms the reaction to that to a certain extent has been okay well let's get our kids to talk about our feelings let's talk about our feelings let's meditate let's do all these things which help but they only fall into a category of what i call brain preparation you basically start getting the things out so that you can start calming down on your physiology and you can start dealing with things but if you just say i feel and you don't do something with what i feel what you've done is you've let the plane take off so think of flying a plane it's got to take off. You've got to have a pilot, co-pilot. There's all kinds of things that go on to get that plane in the air. Then you've got to have the, you know, fly the plane with the co-pilot, with the experience, and then you've got to land the plane. That's logical. We've got to do that with mind management. We've got to let the plane take off. We can't just suppress the plane and and label the plane that's a bad plane and give you know that's that's a good plane. That's let's get rid of the plane. The plane is the problem. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, there's some things that happen where, where yeah, that's uncomfortable. That's terrible. That's unfortunate. That's embarrassing to forget your uh, shoes during gym class and not have shoes. But I'm relieving you from that may not... <laughs> may not help and just recreates the problem the next time, right? No. And if your child is showing up with major behavioral problems and they're not sleeping and they are being difficult at school and they are hitting their siblings or they whatever, that's not a disease. That's not a – you shouldn't pathologize. We need to say, well, why? We need to ask the question, what's going on? And be able to help a child to be able to have the tools to tell their story. And it could be if you track that back. I'm just talking, thinking of an incident of an example of – an interview I did the other day and someone posed that example of their child is just being very unkind to their sibling and actually being quite aggressive and it just suddenly started and it's been going on for a couple of weeks and there's this pattern, they're showing up with something that's different. Now that's not the child's nature, there's something going on. So we need to not just think, oh my gosh, there's a behavioral problem right, and, what's the root you know, they've got ADHD and Exactly. So we need to take the time to actually say to the child, look, you don't hurt your sibling, but I recognize this is not who you are. So let's take the time to sit down and let's actually look at, you know, what are you feeling? What are you doing? What, why are you doing this? You know, let's put this out together. Let's analyze this. Let's dig deep. Let's, and let's see, you know, this is, and then that leads to the point of, okay, well, 
there's someone at school, maybe in this particular situation, this particular sibling who was being aggressive to the other sibling was being teased at school. And there was a consistent teasing going on at school. And the child didn't know how to process that because the child's only a few years old, you know, like six years old or something. And that energy was building like a volcano. So it was exploding on the sibling. So now we know that that's the situation. And that comes through a process of, of getting the child to enact or talk in these various different ways. And I give all the sort of techniques and ways you can help a two-year-old and a three-year-old and a six-year-old and up to 10. This book is from two to 10 on how to be able to, um, you as a parent, facilitate the process very sequentially to get the mind, brain, body digging deep to find out the root cause in a way that the child can handle um, through a process, uh, and once you've got that out, then you you can you can get a solution. You can start working towards a solution. But it's not you fixing the problem; it's you saying, "Hey, I recognize, I validate, something's going on. Let's solve this together. Let's find a way." Then you're teaching the child problem solving skills that unmasks resilience. That tells the child, "Hey." I'm not a bad person and I'm not being punished because I'm a bad person or there's something wrong with me or my brain or whatever. The, you know, they Obviously, the younger the child, they don't have those kind of words, but they will get the messaging, there's something wrong with me, I'm bad. We're not saying that. We're saying what you're doing is separate from who you are and you're doing what you're doing because of a reason or you're showing up like you are because of a reason. And that is the mind management I'm talking about that we, takes time. When right. I was trained, Robert, when I was working with patients, we would work as a team. We would we would never diagnose a patient and give them a label. We would spend five, six, seven hours working with a child, working with a family, working with the school, working with or adult, whatever. We would work with the whole team to get the person's story and get to the root and deconstruct the thing. And that takes time. Dr. Lee, thank you for joining us. Uh, your work feels especially vital today. And I hope listeners will uh, follow your lead and follow your experience and and learn from some of the research that you've done here. Thank you so much. It's been great chatting. Thanks for your great questions. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Dr. Leaf's work and her new book, How to Help Your Children Clean Up Their Mental Mess, available wherever books are sold on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. 
So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.